Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Our Next Guest Is. Hello and welcome to another Our Next Guest Is. This is a conversation where we meet the country's leading speakers in the corporate and events world, and we meet the person behind the name. My name is Michael Pope, and I'm here with Carson White from Leading Voice. Carson, as usual, I ask, who is our next guest? Our next guest is a leader, a lawyer, a business owner, company director, and consultant with over two decades of business, legal, and sports administration experience in the AFL. Our guest was the first ever female president of a men's metropolitan football league and the first woman appointed to the VFL tribunal. In 2019, she became the first woman in 163 years to hold the role of vice president of the Geelong Football Club, winners of the 2022 AFL Premiership. Diana also cares deeply about people and the community, having established one of the largest community palliative care centres in Australia at Deakin University, amongst other community roles. Here today to tell us why Collingwood win this year's premiership, please welcome our next guest, Diana Taylor. Hello, Carson. Hello, Michael. That was quite an introduction and one I might need to take up with you, Carson. (laughs) (laughs) The podcast listeners can't uh, actually see what I'm wearing, but I'm wearing a Collingwood, uh, a retro Collingwood tumpet tonight. So uh, I just... You sure are and filling it out like Tommy Hafey would. Thank you very much. That's very nice of you. Well, you're on the good books now. (laughs) Diana, does the Geelong Football Club run through your veins? Look, it certainly does, Michael. I'm fourth generation Geelong and my earliest memory of the cats is actually sitting in my uh, my nana's kitchen of a Saturday afternoon. Uh, my, my nana was a farmer uh, while she was cooking um, and we had 3GL on the radio and the cats were beaming through and I believe it was Teddy Whitten who would be calling the games at that stage. So that's my very earliest memory. So, yes, the uh, the blue and white uh, just just runs through my veins. You mentioned your grandmother then. In my experience, successful women often have successful women in their life that were mentors. Uh, are there any women that you'd like to name at this point who, who you felt very influenced the path that you've led? Yeah, uh, look, certainly um, my mum and my two grandmas were uh, extremely strong women. They had adversity that they'd overcome. They raised beautiful families um, and were embedded and served their communities. Um, And a lot of the examples and what I try and follow now, I see what they have done and emulated. And I've also had an amazing opportunity to work with some incredible women and to be supported by some amazing women. Peggy O'Neill, AO, former president of the Richmond Football Club, has been a friend of mine for the last two decades. She and I have shared a lot of football stories over that period of time, and I just so admire the way in which she, with grace and dignity, with but with utter strength, uh, went about her presidency at Richmond. So, uh, yes, Michael, there's plenty out there, and I think that's so important that we're able to to see these great people ahead of us and try and emulate what they've done. You trained up as a uh, as a lawyer, but obviously had a huge passion for the game of AFL. So take us back to the early days, how you got into this whole sports administration side. Yeah. Thanks, Carson. Well, um, I think uh, this year is my 23rd year as a, a football administrator. It's the best job I have never been paid for. <laughs> um, so I, I think everyone has their own journey in football, and I, I certainly have mine. And 
I did a, a, a typical thing at, at that point. So I was from Geelong, completed my law degree, uh, moved to Melbourne um, to start my law career. And that was going really well, but really wanted the opportunity to be part of a community. As you can appreciate, I was doing long hours at that point and I just didn't want to come home and sit on the couch. So what I decided to do was to have a look at where my interests were. That was the first thing, you know, the passion, the why, what am I really interested in? And an opportunity came up to join the Western Region Football League as a tribunal member. And it was my first lesson in football that understand what your core skill set is and what talent you have to offer. What is it that's going to get you to the table and keep you at the table? For me, it was being a lawyer, naturally transitioned into that tribunal environment. And and that was where it all started 23 years ago. Given that, and and given that we all know that AFL has had an incredible uh, transformation over the last few years with AFLW, but in those early years, did you find getting into the sports administration side, the tribunal side, difficult? And once you got in, how were you treated? There were a lot of questions asked Carson and Michael of me about why I was doing this. Why would a young woman want to sign herself up for a community football league and a community tribunal? What what was the why that was sitting around it? And there are a number of people who couldn't quite get their heads around the fact that I was just hugely passionate about the game. It was my best way to contribute to community and Sport is one of the greatest change agents we have in this country, and I wanted to be a part of that. So there are other views, I think, taken of me at that point about my why and and what my motivations were in question sitting in and around that. And I also found that I had to work really hard at the relationships with the people that I was engaging with because there were very few women in football administration at any level at that particular point. And I didn't have established relationships with some of these people who had been in the game for two, three, four decades. So what I learned very early on was get to know the human being, make sure they get to know you, establish common ground, because everything starts from that relationship base. And that's been one of the the core tenets that I have held to as I've moved through community football, state-level football, now the AFL, but also my legal and business career, that common ground piece with people and establishing why we're all there, it's it's incredibly important. And I learned to be pretty resilient during those periods as well because when there's only one of you in the room and you're, you're feeling your minority status, you've actually got to work pretty hard at the conversations that are sitting around you. And you've got to know why you're there and how you can possibly positively contribute. So great lessons for me in those early stages. Indeed. And what I'm taking from that is create those relationships, put at the forefront the why you're here so that almost the gender disappears. That was 23 years ago. How has it changed, particularly for women in the AFL now, in your experience? Yeah, yeah. I think, Michael, there was a fundamental shift when the AFL introduced its respect and responsibility policy. Um, So we're now going back about 15 years. And that started a conversation about gender that probably wasn't at AFL level previously. That segued into the creation of greater employment opportunities and those discussions in that AFL um, Australian Rules football landscape. But the real game changer, I think, was the AFLW competition. That fundamentally changed the way 
women's sport was going to be supported from an administration perspective, that the money focus that needed to be placed in and around the commercials for the game, but the way in which women in football would be supported. And it's led to other conversations around coaching, um, Mm. around employment status, around women sitting uh, now on boards um, and representation being a, a lot greater. There's still a very long way to go, but fundamentally things, I've seen that shift definitely over the last decade. So you mentioned there women sitting on board. So taking you back to um, in the introduction, I mentioned uh, the first female vice president of the Geelong Football Club in 163 years. So tell us how that all came about. Yeah, well, Carson, I um, I had the, the great pleasure of being um, and, and privilege of being mentored by Brian Cook, the former CEO of the Geelong Footy Club for 23 years. Brian and I had got to know each other. He was fabulous at providing advice to me when I was in the Western Region Footy League. So this is going back a long time. So he and I got to know each other and he put my name forward to Frank Costa. I had a vacancy coming up, Doug Wade, great Doug Wade was coming off the board and Brian put my name forward to Frank. And when I was going through that process, and this is now 2009, so a a very successful year for the football club, I I said to Brian, you know, what do I do here? What's the application process? Um, I'm a lawyer. I'm used to having things in boxes and there's a position description and tell me what I need to do. He said, oh, you'll be fine. Just turn up, have a conversation with people. So I was called to Frank's office for a coffee. And when Frank Costa called you for a coffee, you absolutely went. So it was initial conversation with Frank. But I then had a a meeting with all of the board members and I remember it was October 2009 and sitting in the middle of the table for this first interview that I had with the board was the Premiership Cup. Talk (laughs) about intimidating. My (laughs) goodness. So I had in my inimitable fashion, because I'm a lawyer, I'm a details person, I had devised my core skill sets against the values of the organisation and what I could do to contribute I was completely overprepared. Um, the, board, the board members weren't at that time, but we, like we're having today, we had a fantastic conversation about what I could do to contribute because I was not going to step forward unless I had a valuable role that I could play. And they ticked me off and then started in 2010 at the footy club. So that, that's how it all started at Geelong. In Carson's introduction, there's clearly more to you than AFL, but I just want to stay with AFL just for one more question before we move on. What's the nugget of gold that you might give anyone listening who is keen to move into a space where they are the minority? As you were many years ago as a woman in a man's world of football, someone listening, any tips or tricks that you that you can apply to anyone, whether it's a race difference or an age difference or sexual orientation? Any, any tips on that? What a great question, Michael. I think that, first of all, you need to be passionate you need to have some reason to be stepping into the space that you want to. And what I say to people who I'm advising regularly, and it might be in a, I want to be a an ex or I want to get onto a board, don't be the person who doesn't want to turn up on a cold, wintry Tuesday night to where you need to actually need to be because people will find you out very quickly. You need to know why you want to be there. You need to be engaged about that. I think the second thing is understand what you've got to offer and be able to clearly articulate that to the people sitting around the table. But also 
have some thought process about the fact that this is not just about you. It's about what the organisation or the community or those people are seeking from the person who's going to be sitting in your seat. And then I think accept the fact that as a minority, there's going to be some work to do and there's probably going to be more work on you than there is on the other side of the table. That that was my experience. I reckon it was about a 70-30 split for me in terms of my effort versus the effort coming back. But then that starts to equalise. And I think that understanding that, you know, human beings are going to say the wrong things from time to time. It's not necessarily with intent. Just try and work through those relationships and build them and be patient. This is not going to happen overnight. It could be a couple of months. It could be a year or two into where you want to be, where you get to a place where you're feeling comfortable and you can see the value of your your output. So don't be in a hurry. Just take your time with that process and talk to people, you know, build that network of people around you as well who are going to be able to support you. Fantastic. I asked for some gold nuggets. You gave me the mint. That's terrific, Diana. Let me take you to the establishment of that community palliative care centre. What was motivating you to do that? And, and tell us briefly about that. Yeah, thank you. So Anamkara House Geelong is Geelong's community palliative care centre. Four or five years ago, we started with four small rooms. We have now built a 20-bed facility out at Deakin University, Warren Ponds. What we want to do, we want to care for our loved ones. We want our loved ones to have choice if they've been diagnosed with an end-of-life condition or a palliative about where they actually want to be and how they want to spend their time. What I've found, and it's been an incredible education for me, is that once people have been diagnosed, they've got a lot of living to do and they've got a lot of quality living to do and they should be able to do it on their terms. So this organisation that I chair enables people to do it and it takes them out of the hospital system and it takes them out of the aged care system from the ages of 18 upwards. This is an amazing institution as well because we've partnered with Deakin, we've got a teaching and research agreement with Deakin where there's bedside learning for students, understanding the position of people in this environment and we can take time, you know, there's time to spend with people and their family members in this environment What we don't do well in this country is we don't talk well about death and we don't talk well about dying. It is a place that we only go to when we have to and there is very little planning that that actually takes place, even when people are well. So really what we want to do is to do our bit, our small bit, to change the dialogue, to change the narrative and the fear that accompanies death and dying in Australia, but we also want to make sure that people have a good death and we provide choice for people to be able to do that. Fantastic, Diana. All all the power to you. You, You're clearly a very uh, broad woman in your interests, from football to palliative care to no doubt many other things, which leads us to speaking. But before we get to speaking, you've put a lot of those thoughts down into a book that, Carson, you've been flicking through. Yeah, so you wrote a book called The Playbook and you mentioned Peggy O'Neill earlier and um, I think this pretty much probably sums up the, the book and I'll just read her quote from the back and it says, I only wish that I had the playbook as a navigational aid as I was charting my own course. So given that, um, Diana, do you want to just talk a little bit about why you wrote the book and a little bit about the book? Yeah, thank you. Thanks for the opportunity. I realised 
some time ago and and I say that this book was sitting in my head for five years and probably like yourselves I started to have a lot of people come to me about what do I do in this situation I want a career in football or I want a career in law or I'm transitioning you know I do talk to a lot of men and women who are in their late 50s 60s who are transitioning for the next chapter of their lives as well everyone comes from a different place but I had these questions being asked of me and, and people you know requesting my thoughts my advice about what to do with respect to that and I, I started to realise and observe that I did have a lot of experience, that my focus throughout my career has been on people. And I have good observational skills. I think I've got pretty good emotional intelligence. And I realised that people have these dreams, they have these hopes and these aspirations. And they are really good about maybe articulating the dream at the end point but it's the planning process, it's the daily work or the monthly work or the yearly work that's required to get to that point. People struggle with, they are challenged by that. And sometimes they're challenged with placing accountability on themselves and they really don't have, you know, some people don't have um, mentors and people that they can talk to to assist them with their journey. So I want people to succeed. And I wanted to be able to use the various facets of my life. And, you know, 23 years in something is a very, very long period of time. And I felt I I just had some, some words of assistance that might be able to help people plan their own pathway to success in their dreams. So that that effectively was the core reason for the book. It's an incredibly practical book with um, 14 key chapters, which um, which you obviously go in a bit of detail about each of those points. The playbook, Crossing the White Line to Succeed in Life, Business and the AFL. So is it learnings from that book and from your life experience that you take to the stage when asked to speak? It is, Michael. What what I found and with in writing the book, I'd never written a book before. There were a number... Well, how did you find that process, by the way, as yeah, a first book writer? At the start point, Michael, incredibly challenging because I realised that I needed to get personal. I needed to tell some stories. I needed to talk about elements in my life where, you know, I've got a a, a different um, slant now on the use of the term failure because I actually think that those moments are incredible learning opportunities that just guide our pathway and assist us in the future. And so I had to get over myself. I had to get over my fear. I had to work through my stories to determine, well, what is actually relevant here? This isn't a self-indulgent memoir or autobiography. That's not what I'm intending to do. Mm. What I'm intending to do is to humanise my experience to try and demonstrate those issues as examples. And being a lawyer, I can frame things up pretty well. But, Michael, it was many iterations of the framework for the book many redrafts of chapters and then also what I realised was people are time poor and what I do best is have a direct conversation with people. So um, as Carson, you said earlier, this is a direct to the point conversation with the reader where just about every chapter is summarised in terms of the key points. So tapping back into the legal skills associated with that. But it was really important that I'm able to get to the point and get to the point quickly. So some of the feedback I've been getting is that people have sort of been taking an hour and a half to three hours in one or two sittings to get through the book, which is exactly what I wanted because it then becomes a reference point later. 
Yeah, fantastic. So let's segue you two on stage now. What does someone get when they book Diana Taylor for a speech? Michael, it's incredibly important to me that I understand what the client and what the audience is actually seeking, what they're attempting to target. As you said, I've got a range of experience from my my legal career and working in business. So I've got relatable experience to a wide range of audience members. I really want to know what they are seeking from this experience. And I I think just in terms of the presentation of what I am talking about and doing, it really is situated around the art of business and life. I want to go into spaces for people that they're not necessarily thinking about the other side of the table concept, the emotional intelligence component that people need to bring to their workspaces and their personal life and their engagement and their leadership. There are nuanced conversations that we don't do enough of that I think are incredibly valuable, including leadership and decision-making. Everything we do in life comes back to the value and quality of our decision-making from the individual conversations that we have to the organisational decisions that we make. So I want to step into those spaces for people and I also want to, and I think part of the value that I can offer is about the planning process, you know, the planning stages for how you get from A to B to C and really empower people to take that forward action, that that entry. In the playbook, I talk about it as crossing the white line. It's that mindset piece that allows people to strive for more to be more, to find more in themselves because we've all got it in us. I want to help people tap into that and give them the pathway to take those next steps. So you mentioned leadership a couple of times in there. Given that you have been um, certainly one of the female trailblazers in the AFL in the last sort of 20-odd years, what advice do you have for female leaders out there? I think that for female leaders, the first thing is you have to understand yourself. You really need to know who you are. You need to do the work on yourself. And the analogy I use is champion footballers don't get knocked off the ball because they've got incredible balance and strength on both sides of their body and they understand positionally where they need to be when they are over the top of the ball. So you apply that analogy, understand yourself, work on your strengths, It's a mindset as well as an emotional and a physicality that you're first of all bringing to the table. Understand your why. It's the thing that's going to keep you right in the game when things get tough because inevitably they're going to. You're going to be wanting to enter into a space where there's potentially a thousand other people lined up, you know, wanting to have the opportunity that you have and understand what value you are going to bring to the organisation, to the club, whatever it is that you are looking at. And fundamentally, never, never, never give up. It's the um, Winston Churchill line that I use in the book. There's a a great piece, if you haven't seen it, I know you're both not Geelong supporters, but in terms of life lessons, it's well worth looking at the, the relentless piece that the AFL's just launched on Geelong's footy season. The Japanese proverb says, um, get knocked down seven times, get up eight. Geelong got knocked down 10 times, got up 11. It is fundamentally important that you have that level of resilience in yourself. Just get up, just keep moving because, boy, there are some fantastic things around the corner for you. 
Fantastic advice, Diana. And uh, as a St Kilda follower, we'll certainly be taking on all of that advice <laughs> and much more. You're not as, far away, Michael. Hang <laughs> as Carson said, you are a trailblazer and you made mention of a number of mentors who have made an influence in your life. Well, I suspect there's many people, many women, but men as well, who see you as their mentor. Congratulations on the book and your position that you've held and, and whatever the future holds. And thank you for your time today. Michael and Carson, thank you so much for the opportunity and thank you for the platform that you provide to speakers um, and, and to people to be able to talk about what they're doing. It's incredibly value and I'm indebted to you both. Thank you. Thank you, Diana. And if you would like to book Diana for to come and talk to your organisation about leadership or anything around uh, running a successful organisations, please to go to dianataylor.com.au. That was Our Next Guest Is with Carson White from Leading Voice and your MC, Michael Pope. To hear more of our guests, you can find us on iTunes or simply visit www.ournextguestis.com.au. But until next time, let's take a break. Bye.